This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. We're very excited to welcome you again to DHA's monthly condo crunch. It's terrific to see so many familiar attendees and return attendees as well. For those who are attending for the first time, the goal of these sessions is to provide concise and up-to-date information within a 30 to 45 minute time frame at the most. We're hoping that we can get all of this into a crunch while you have your lunch. So hopefully you've brought your tea, your coffee, your, your snacks, whatever you might need to get you through the next 30 to 45 minutes. In this session, we proceed with a lecture style format. We don't take any questions live, again, because it's a, a way to deliver some good information in a short amount of time. We will still be doing our Q&A with DHA sessions. So if you have any burning questions, save those up and we'll try our best to uh, get one of those out in short order. So let's jump right in. Today's session is all about when to amend your governing documents. And I'll just start out from a macro perspective. There are a variety of different times where you may consider amending your governing documents. For example, as we all know in Ontario, we recently went through a major legislative change in 2017. And we have more changes coming down the pipe. So legislative changes are the first macro situations where you might want to think about amending your documents. Actually, in fact, you probably will want to think about amending your documents, and you're going to hear about why shortly. One of the other times when you're going to want to consider amending your governing documents are changes in the industry. For example, we've recently seen big changes in the industry, such as the implementation of uh, legalization of marijuana, the impact that has on your governing documents, changes with respect to uses of units, Airbnb, VRBO, examples of some of those. So industry-wide changes that have an impact on condominiums across the community. And finally, your third situation where you are probably going to want to think about many of your governing documents are internal changes, things that just affect your condo. Uh, for example, maybe satellite dishes, maybe uh, again, smoking could be a, a specific one to your condo. So changes to legislation, changes in the industry, and internal changes specific to just your condo are the macro uh, perspectives when you want to think about changing your governing documents. So let's see how those macro impacts affect you on a micro level with respect to your declaration, bylaws, and then rules and policies. I'm going to turn it right over to Jessica to start us off with our declarations. Jessica, over to you. Thanks so much, Nancy. Good afternoon, everybody. As Nancy mentioned, I'll be talking briefly about amendments to condominium corporation declarations, the key things for boards and managers to be thinking about, and the types of amendments we're seeing most frequently. Uh, the following is a brief list of the things to be thinking about in no particular order. The first is housekeeping and general updating of your declaration. So depending on the age of your corporation, some provisions in your declaration might be out of date based on changes to legislation. In many cases, we will propose amendments uh, that are of a housekeeping nature to either eliminate inconsistencies between your older declaration and the Condominium Act and to delete any unnecessary or undesirable provisions. The second would be changes to repair and maintenance obligations. So in some cases, in particular communities, a condominium corporation may wish to change the existing repair and maintenance obligations of the corporation or of the owner as currently set out in their declaration. 
So for example, I recently worked with a condominium who was amending their declaration to have the corporation take on the maintenance and repair responsibilities for the eaves troughs on the townhouse units. Uh, these had previously been maintained and repaired by the owners. So to change this, uh, we had to uh, look at an amendment to the declaration. The third type of amendment uh, to be thinking about has to do with a condominium's indemnification provision. Uh, having a strong and clear indemnification provision in your declaration is extremely important. These provisions deal with situations where an owner may have to indemnify the condominium corporation. Uh, in some cases, a declaration will either have a, pr a provision that's not particularly strong or may not have one at all. And in these cases, we strongly recommend amending your declaration to add an improved provision. Uh, the purpose of this type of provision is essentially if an owner, occupant, or guest of the unit uh, causes a condominium corporation to incur costs, the indemnification provision allows the corporation to recover those costs by adding them to the common expenses of the particular owner. And it's an important provision which serves to protect all the innocent and compliant owners in the condominium. Uh, these sorts of provisions are going to be increasingly important after coming changes to the Condominium Act come into force. And we generally like to see wording that makes it clear that an owner's duty to indemnify the corporation applies to costs, including legal costs, that the corporation incurs due to violations of the Condominium Act, the Declaration, Bylaws, or Rules. And lastly, uh, boards and managers will want to be thinking about the insurance provisions in their declarations. Some declarations, again, particularly for older condominiums, uh, but sometimes for newer ones as well, contain insurance provisions which are out of date or might not be uh, consistent with the newer Condominium Act or just undesirable in relation to things like the timing of insurance appraisals, the requirement to have an insurance trustee, and certain subrogation rights. And in those cases, it might make sense to uh, review those provisions and revise or delete uh, them as necessary. In many cases, corporations will also want to think about adding language to their declarations regarding the responsibility for the deductible on the corporation's insurance policy. Right now, uh, many corporations have insurance deductible bylaws in place that deal with these issues. And right now, the Condominium Act uh, says that insurance deductibles are dealt with through bylaw. However, under the coming changes to the Condominium Act, this sort of provision will be required to be in the declaration. It's currently unclear uh, whether existing bylaws are going to be grandfathered in once the amendments come into force. We, we don't yet have an answer on that. So in many cases, it might make sense to add this language into the declaration now in preparation for this amendment uh, that we think is coming down the pipe in the legislation. So now that you've decided you want to amend your declaration for these variety of reasons, how do you do it? So section 109 of the Condominium Act allows an amendment to be approved by court order, but that's limited to cases where there is a clear error or inconsistency in your declaration. So if you have a case where your declarant made a clear error in the declaration that needs to be corrected, you would look to 109 and that's a court process. But the vast majority of amendments are approved through the procedure in section 107 of the Condominium Act, which is approving an amendment with the consent of the owners. Under section 107, once a proposed amendment has been approved by the board of directors, it's presented at a meeting of owners uh, to discuss the proposed amendments. There's no vote at that meeting, just a discussion. And instead the corporation has to obtain written consents from the owners. And these written consents can be received anytime before, during, or after the meeting that's set to discuss the amendment. And then depending on the type of change, a particular amendment will require written consent from the owners of either 80% or 90% of the units in the corporation. 
This is a high threshold. So it's important to make sure that if you're walking down uh, the road to amend your declaration, that you're communicating with your owners about the importance of the changes. You're encouraging uh, them to participate and learn more about why the board is proposing these changes so you can hopefully reach those thresholds. Uh, then once you the required consents are accumulated by the corporation, we proceed with registering the amendment with the land registry office and the amendment is in force. So that's a quick little summary of about amendments to declarations. I'm now gonna hand it over to Jim to discuss changes to the corporation's bylaws. Thanks so much, Jess. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you for joining us. Uh, so as Jess said, I'm going to speak for a few minutes about reasons for bylaws. And I'm gonna go through five categories of reasons. Um, and I have five slides for you, one slide for each category. Um, now for each category, I include a list of examples. I'm not going to talk about each example. I'm only going to talk about the examples or items shown in red on the slides. Um, in the next couple of days, we will post these five slides on our Condo Law News blog. So you can all obtain them there if you would like to. Okay, here's the first category, the first slide. There we are. So this first category, updating provisions which are out of date. So bylaw provisions that are out of date are provisions that uh, are not consistent with the current law, such as in particular, recent provisions of the Condominium Act. So uh, these bylaw provisions don't necessarily create a legal problem as such because the act takes priority out-of-date bylaw provisions are deemed to be amended to conform to the Act. But they can cause confusion and they can cause arguments with owners. So owners see these provisions in the bylaws and they say, how come we're not following those provisions and you need to be explaining to them that the Condominium Act overcomes them. So it's best to amend them, I think, or to just get rid of them. Again, I list a number of examples. Uh, you'll see on the list incorrect notice periods, incorrect quorum requirements, et cetera. Uh, but I'm gonna just talk about my red note here. Generally speaking in your bylaws, uh, I like to try not to repeat provisions of the Condominium Act. Sometimes it makes sense to do that, but in general not, because when the act is amended, those provisions will again be out of date. So one of the things we like to do in uh, our bylaw amendments is, except where necessary, not make reference to a particular sections of the act. Um, anyway, that's category number one, cleaning up provisions that are out of date. So let's go to category number two. And this is deleting provisions which are bad or unhelpful. And here I'm gonna go through my red items. The first one, protection of director's provisions. And you will see these found in many bylaws and they sound good, but are actually not good, they're bad. What they do is prevent the condominium corporation from asserting a claim against a director or a past director for damage caused or expense caused to the condominium corporation by the director. The director is already protected because the corporation is obligated to indemnify the director. And I'll talk about those provisions in a few minutes. But the protection of director's clauses try to protect the DNO insurer, meaning that the condominium corporation would suffer the loss without insurance to cover the loss. 
we actually have a court decision from about 25 years ago stating that these provisions are in fact legally void, but I still like to delete them. The next one, provisions stating that directors and officers are indemnified by the condominium corporation. Now, I, I mentioned these are perhaps the most important provisions in a condominium's bylaws. Very important for the protection of the directors. And they're almost always included in the original bylaws of condominiums. However, some of these provisions are poorly worded and they therefore don't provide the full indemnity that they should. Those provisions, it's very important, they need to be carefully checked and amended if necessary. Next one, the next red one. I don't like provisions stating that management contracts must be ratified by the owners. And you do see those provisions in quite a few bylaws. In my view, management decisions, management contracts should be board decisions. They, you shouldn't require ratification by bylaw. Um, and my final item on this uh, slide, uh, rules should not be part of a bylaw. You often see rules that are included in bylaws and they shouldn't be for two reasons. Number one, if you need to amend any of those rules that are in the bylaws, this will create doubt about whether or not you need to go through the bylaw amendment process to do this, or whether you can just go through the rule amending process, which is different. That's number one. Also, there is an outside argument that rules that are contained in a bylaw are perhaps not legally valid because the act, the condominium act does not say that rules can be in a bylaw. So keep the rules out of the bylaws in general. Uh, next slide, adding helpful provisions. So again, I'm gonna go through my red items, the ones that I think are, well, that I think are exciting for this condo crunch. Now, first one, make sure you have a good provision for interest on arrears of common expenses. Try to make sure that that provision is consistent with any interest provisions in your declaration. Sometimes there can be uh, interest provisions mentioned in the declaration for example, for um, maintenance or repair costs that are added to an owner's common expenses, and you want consistency between those interest provisions. Whenever possible, though, I like an interest provision that calls for 12% interest, calculated and compounded monthly, because this makes the calculation very clear and straightforward, 1% per month of arrears. So what I'm talking about is 12% annual interest. The next item, Include a provision in your bylaws stating that payments are to be applied to the oldest arrears because this helps delay or roll forward the lien deadline. And without such a provision in the bylaws, payments by post-dated check can sometimes be directed by the owner to be applied to a particular month. And so this bylaw provision, I think, can overcome that and make sure that you can apply the payments to the oldest arrears, which is a really good idea. Next one, a lot of condominiums like a qualification for directors that the directors need to be owners or spouses of owners or appointees of corporate owners. And for that kind of qualification, you need a bylaw. So in other words, you don't have a bylaw, that's not a requirement. That qualification for directors is not in the act. Next one, I also like a qualification stating that a director is no longer qualified to remain on the board if they miss three consecutive board meetings 
without providing an excuse that is reasonably satisfactory to the board. So to me, this is a, an effective way to remove a director that is not involved, or in other words, is essentially um, not participating and has effectively resigned or made them disqualified themselves through inaction. So I like that kind of uh, qualification many of our clients do for directors. And finally, I like to include an enhanced provision respecting unit inspections, including, including the right to carry out annual smoke alarm inspections, which many condominiums do, or inspections before issuance of status certificates, if you wish, which some condominiums do. Even though such inspections are already permitted, in my view, by Section 19 of the Condominium Act, and often also by provisions in the declaration, I think that a bylaw can serve to make this clearer. Uh, so it can add some detail. So I like those bylaw provisions. Okay, the next one, next slide, revisions, uh, the 27, uh, 2017 revisions to the act. So these are the recent revisions to the act. Um, some new bylaws are now permitted because of these 2017 revisions to the act. And one of the things I wanted to note, you can see it in the heading, uh, these bylaws require a lower voting approval. Most bylaws need yes votes from the owners of a majority of all units. These new bylaws, 2017, uh, authorized by the 2017 amendments, they need yes votes from a majority in attendance at a meeting, as long as you have a 25% quorum. So that's, a, that's an important little distinction about the lower voting requirement for them. Anyway, I have the one red item here that I wanna talk about, which of course is the hot item, new bylaws to permit electronic or telephonic attendance and voting at meetings. Um, uh, these uh, bylaws actually aren't required at the present time because of the province, province's temporary order permitting virtual meetings currently until the end of 2021. However, unless the province ends up making that permanent and the province might do that, these bylaws will be needed for virtual meetings uh, after beginning in 2022. Okay, now my last slide, other reasons, and I stress this isn't a comprehensive list, but other reasons for bylaws. And you can see I've got uh, some red items there that I wanna focus on. First one, standard unit bylaws, I wanted to uh, remind everyone are mandatory for condominiums declared prior to May 5, 2001. You understand these bylaws describe the standard units, the features of the units that are to be uh, insured, arra arrangements for insurance are to be made by the condominium corporation. So that's the first thing. Those bylaws are mandatory um, standard unit bylaws for condominiums declared prior to May 5, 2001. Also, many condominiums are passing new standard unit bylaws to update their standard unit descriptions to remove certain high risk features from the standard unit descriptions, and particularly flooring, baseboards, uh, countertops, uh, some cabinets, that sort of thing. Some condominiums are even going with bare bones standard unit descriptions, where the standard units essentially contain no features, which means that owners must then arrange insurance for all features of their units, because all of the features then are treated as unit improvements, and the corporation only arranges insurance for the common elements. And of course, the idea behind these amendments is to reduce the condominium corporation's insurance obligations. 
Next one, bylaws can deal with maintenance matters, even though the declaration, of course, deals, in, uh, the, the Condominium Act and the declaration deals sort of an, in an upfront manner with repair and maintenance. You can also deal with it sometimes in a bylaw. So for instance, um, even when owners are obligated to maintain the units, it may make sense to have the condominium corporation carry out certain unit maintenance on behalf of the owners. And these bylaws are tricky, I wanna stress, because they must be drafted so as to hopefully be consistent with those maintenance obligations in the declaration. But in some cases, this sort of bylaw is definitely worth considering if you're looking for some way to have the condominium corporation fulfill maintenance on behalf of the owners. Um, next one I've got there is you can pass a bylaw to adopt occupancy standards, uh, which many I'm sure of our listeners here know. In particular, you can adopt the occupancy standards of the municipality, which are usually fairly um, uh, lenient, such as uh, a maximum of one person per 100 square feet. And these are directed at health issues. You, but you can also adopt the building design occupancy standards, which are typically two persons per bedroom. And this is directed at life safety in relation to evacuation during a fire. Now, the advantage of such a bylaw, occupancy standards bylaw passed by the condominium corporation, is that it allows the condominium corporation to enforce the occupancy standards rather than hoping to rely on the municipality to do so, which can sometimes be... Um, unhopeful, put it that way, you may not get the kind of response you want from the municipality. Uh, next one, if your declaration doesn't uh, deal properly or sufficiently with parking or storage space rights or designations, um, assignments of parking or storage rights, a bylaw can be a good solution and the courts have confirmed that a bylaw can serve that purpose. Finally, I've got that note there. You can amend or change the declaration by bylaw. Sorry, let me say that again. You cannot amend or change the declaration by bylaw, but you can clarify something in the declaration that is ambiguous or unclear. So many times a bylaw may do the trick rather than needing to amend the declaration. You heard what just said about how um, uh, onerous it is to try to amend the declaration. Many out there may know but have tried that. But again, a, a bylaw can't amend the declaration, but you can clarify something that is ambiguous or unclear in the declaration. You can use a bylaw for that purpose, and we've often done that. Okay, so those are my comments about bylaws. I'm now pleased to pass this off to Melinda to talk about rules and policies. Great. Thanks so much, Jim. So rules and policies, I'll start by talking about the difference between rules and policies, and then explain some of the different rule and policy options that our clients are considering these days. Um, so rules set out the do's and don'ts for owners and residents on the property. They typically deal with safety and security, welfare on the property, and they're designed to ensure that everyone can use the property without interference. An example of a rule would be a rule prohibiting smoking on the property. Rules are passed under section 858 of the Condominium Act, and therefore they can also be enforced through means available under the Condominium Act. Their rules are passed in two ways. Um, they can be passed by an ordinary vote of owners 
members at a duly called meeting, or they can be passed by the board and then circulated to owners with the required notice. If um, after they're circulated to owners, there's no meeting requisitioned, the rule would come into force uh, 30 days later. If a meeting is requisitioned about the rule, whether the rule passes depends on the outcome of the vote that happens at the required meeting. So policies are a lesser known option that are also available to condominiums. They're designed to express the procedures and principles to be followed in situations that come up repeatedly for boards that boards have to consider all the time. So um, they're used to record board decisions um, in a way that ensures the board's decision will be consistent on that particular issue um, at all times. Um, they should only be used, so a policy should only be used for issues where it's proper for the board to make the decision um, by resolution themselves. A policy shouldn't be used to deal with an issue that would typically require um, approval from owners, like a bylaw or rule issue. Um, an example of a policy um, is an appropriate policy issue would be how to deal with requests to rent the party room. So the policy could set out that the board is required to respond to the request in a certain number of days, that there's a certain form to be used, um, that there's a requirement for a security deposit, that type of thing. Interestingly, policies are not mentioned in the Condominium Act, so you're not going to see reference to them there. Um, so they are not enforceable under the Condominium Act in the same way that a rule would be or a bylaw. But the courts have still held that um, a policy is valid. Um, so to pass a policy, policies are a bit easier to pass than a rule. A policy is simply passed by board resolution at a duly called meeting. The policy can be recorded in the minutes, but it's also a good idea to keep the policy as a separate standalone document in a place where you keep um, all of the condominium covering documents. You can have a folder for policies. And on that point, if the policy is something that owners should know about, then it, it's wise to circulate the policy once it's passed, just so owners have notice of it. So in terms of examples of different rules and policies that um, boards are considering these days, um, I'll deal with rules first. Um, one example would be prohibiting a rule to prohibit short-term tenancy. So this is an example, like Nancy mentioned, of a change that's come about that we've seen in the industry. The idea um, of a short-term tenancy rule is to prevent um, hotel-type use in your condominium. So high turnover of guests in and out of the unit for one to two night stays, that type of thing. We prohibit this type of use by creating a minimum duration um, for tenancies. Um, it could be one month, it could be six months, it could be a year, that type of thing. Um, notably, hotel-type hotel use is often prohibited in most condominiums, in, at least in Ottawa, um, through certain provisions in the declaration. But in our experience, passing the rule helps clarify um, to owners what the requirements are for um, tenancies and this idea that hotel type use is not permitted. Another popular rule that we're seeing a lot of these days, particularly with the legalization of marijuana, is a smoking rule. 
So uh, prohibiting smoking of any type of tobacco, marijuana, that type of thing. Um, on all areas of the property, it's possible to ban smoking on the property um, in the units and the common elements. Things to consider in this type of rule are um, whether you do actually want to permit um, smoking in certain areas, like a designated smoking area on the common elements. Another thing to consider would be grandfathering. So grandfathering can be limited can be offered to um, any current um, uh, owner that uh, is a smoker on a time-limited basis, so once two years, two to three years, um, or for the duration of that person's um, occupancy in the unit. It's not entirely clear at law whether grandfathering is um, mandatory in these types of rules, but in our experience, including grandfathering, um, generally helps to show that the rule is um, as reasonable as possible and therefore uh, less prone to being challenged by certain owners. Um, it also helps you to get the required approval for, um, for the rule if you offer a grandfathering provision. Um, another type of rule that we do a lot of is what we refer to um, as a single family use of units rule. So this is another example of responding to an internal internal uh, change in your condominium. The purpose of this type of rule is um, to prevent large groups of unrelated people from living together. So for example, large groups of students or a boarding house situation. Um, it's truly surprising sometimes how many people um, try and fit into one individual unit. Um, the difficulty is that um, those situations of overcrowding can relate to safety and security issues on the property. So um, a single family use of units rule essentially deals with that issue by defining what the acceptable living arrangements would be uh, for a unit. Typically, we define the um, living arrangements quite broadly, so we try and find different um, descriptions of social units to go as broad as possible, um, except, and, and then sort of define them in a way where we um, exclude basically large groups of unrelated people. Um, the other type of rule that I seem to see a lot of right now is um, rules related to flooring changes and hard flooring. So when owners change flooring, for example, in an older building, if they change from uh, a carpeted area to hard flooring, or um, in a lot of these mid-rise wood-framed buildings, if um, owners change the laminate flooring to a newer type of laminate flooring, sometimes we are seeing that it, it ends up creating um, noise transfer problems. And so it is possible to pass a flooring rule that helps explain to owners the standards to be met when they're choosing new flooring so that they can find a flooring that has a sufficient level of noise attenuation. Often, um, boards are working with sound engineers to pass this type of rule. So that's, those are my comments on rules. Um, policies that boards are um, considering these days Certain policies are required by legislation, much like other organizations in Ontario. So for example, if your condominium has employees, which most do, an employee is essentially defined as like a paid employee, but also a contractor who would come on site. 
there's two types of policies that you are required to have um, by provincial legislation. So the first is a violence and harassment policy. This is required under, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. This type of policy essentially defines what is considered to be violence and harassment in the workplace and, step, and it sets out steps to protect employees from that type of treatment. Um, it would also set out how complaints could be made if someone is experiencing violence and harassment and what the appropriate responses would be to those complaints. Um, notably, uh, violence and harassment policy could also be passed as a rule. And doing so extends the protection um, from the rule to include protection of uh, board members. So protecting board members from violence and harassment. Um, notably, the rule would also be enforceable against um, owners and tenants. And so if there was a breach, it just gives you a little bit more teeth uh, if it's passed as a rule to deal with a violence or harassment situation. The other type of um, mandatory policy is uh, what we refer to as a customer service policy. It's required under the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, and it essentially deals with accessibility on the property. It's designed to ensure that staff can properly serve people with disabilities on the property. So, for example, if someone um, needs to access the property who uses a service animal, but you have a rule prohibiting animals on the property, the, the policy just explains how to deal with that type of situation to ensure that um, uh, people with disabilities are properly accommodated. In terms of other policies to consider, we also have a lot of clients considering privacy policies. It's a policy that sets out the guidelines for the collection, use, and disclosure of personal information just to make sure that um, private information is not being used for improper purposes. Um, we also do a lot of human rights policies, so policies on addressing um, how to uh, respond to a request for accommodation of a human right issue um, or how to respond to complaints um, of human rights issues. So those are my comments on rules and policies, and uh, with that, I will turn it back over to Nancy. Thank you so much, Melinda. So just as a quick uh, summary, remember that all of these governing documents that we've been talking about, of course, always have to interplay with provincial and municipal regulations and legislation, and that is also ever-changing. A great example is the recent City of Ottawa's new single-family regulations. Melinda just spoke about some of the rules that we're seeing uh, in place for each condo. So each and every condo has to check your own rules, check this new regulation, and see what the interplay is going to look like with this new City of Ottawa regulation. So that's just a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a tip of uh, maybe something we might be talking about again in the future. So that's a wrap for today. And now I love to say school's out for summer. I can hear Alice Cooper singing in my head as I say that. So stay tuned in August for our blog on our next group of optional topics that you'll get to help us choose for when we start back up with Condo Crunch in the fall. And in the meantime, maybe watch for a summer edition of DHA's Q&A or Q&A with DHA. I often get that backwards. And don't forget, of course, you can listen to Condo Crunch sessions, this one or any of our previous ones at any time. There's nothing like sitting by the canal or the lake or the pool, sipping a cool drink and listening to an episode of Condo Crunch.
At least I think so. So thank you so much for joining us today. We wish you a terrific rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.